several years ago, there was a movie that came out. I love this movie. I don't, it, I don't think it did very well. I don't think a lot of people did like it, but it was called Reign of Fire. It starred Christian Bale, pre-Batman, and Matthew McConaughey. And uh, it was about um, some miners in England that discovered by accident uh, prehistoric dragons deep down in the earth. Uh, very plausible tale. But um, they escaped and just brought havoc on humanity and completely destroyed it. And so the movie jumps up, I think, about 20 years or so, 30 years. Earth is an apocalyptic wasteland, and there are small groups of human beings all over the place. And uh, Matthew McConaughey leads an army from America that has made its way over by helicopter uh, to kind of the hub of where everything was. They found out and wants to fight the dragons and destroy them and take the world back. Christian Bale uh, was the son of the miner that found it. And... Uh, doesn't believe anything can be done. The dragons destroyed everything. This really is a great story and a great movie, but now you don't have to see it because I'm going to tell you the whole thing. But um, he, Christian uh, Bale, so he has this little compound of people he's holed up within a castle just trying to survive. So they're not trying to fight the dragons or destroy them. They're just hunkered down, hoping the dragons don't get them, hoping that the evil people that are left in the world don't get them. And so his whole idea is preserve what you have. Don't try to fight. It's a lost battle. You can't fight with dragons. And then Matthew McConaughey shows up with his tanks and this helicopter, and they're arguing, right? They're fighting. And there's this great line. And Christian Bale says, when he, when he sees, he says, how do you get a helicopter over here? The sky is their ter- territory. And Matthew McConaughey leans into him and says, no, no, it's not. It's your territory. And it's my territory. They just borrowed it. And I love, I love that idea. Beloved, when you look around the world, we can do one of two things, right? We can hunker down, pray for daylight, just try to survive, hope that our kids pick it up and survive for us. Or we can realize that every single atom and molecule in this universe belongs under the domain of Jesus Christ. And we can fight the enemy spiritually through prayer and through the gospel Or we can just try to survive. But the earth is your territory. And it's my territory. In the name and in the power of the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. If we were to write a biblically based constitution for our church. Which would be a great idea for any church. Make the Bible your constitution. If we were going to do that, we would use the book of Ephesians. Paul's letter to the Ephesian church was written in about 60 A.D., Uh, while Paul was imprisoned in Rome for preaching the gospel. And this letter tells us what God has accomplished for us in Christ, who that means we are, the church, why that's what we are, and how that shapes our lives together and towards the world as his people. Ephesus, uh, the church, you know, that this letter was written to, or the churches in Ephesus, they didn't have the glaring Issues that maybe Galatia had or Corinth had, at least not at this time. Uh, no major false doctrines that we know of or difficulties that caused Paul to write, at least not when Paul wrote to them. But later, about 30 years or so later, John, when John sent the letter to Ephesus from Jesus in Revelation, major problems had developed. Which means we could infer that they hadn't listened to or taken Paul's advice. The church in Ephesians, he says in Revelation 2, had lost its first Love, which when we read the context and understand what we know of Ephesus by that point, that was their intense missionary impulse towards the community in which they lived that they had so on fire 
when the gospel first arrived there in Acts 18, which is about eight years before this letter was written. So in only about 40 years time from when the gospel hit Ephesus to when John wrote Revelation and this letter in between, the light in Ephesus is already in very grave danger of dying out. That doesn't mean they were going to be shut down necessarily, although that would come for provinces of Rome. It doesn't mean they weren't allowed to meet. It doesn't mean they had ran out of money or offerings. It meant they were not making disciples. They hated evil. Revelation says this of the church in Ephesus. They were discerning when it came to what was true and what was false. They weren't a licentious people. They weren't loose with their morals or behavior. And yet, Jesus was threatening the church in Ephesus to come to them in order to remove their lampstand, their witness, their light in that great city. Let the one who has ears to hear, hear then what the Spirit is saying to Moundsville Baptist Church in the letter of Ephesians, because the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Paul writes to reiterate and reinforce the gospel, the truth the church had first enjoyed when Paul had personally ministered to them. Ephesus might have been Paul's most educated church when it came to the teaching of Scripture, but he not only wants to help believers grasp the gospel more tightly, but to learn how to bring that gospel to bear on the things that are threatening the church's life And the church is witnessed there or will threaten them. Throughout Ephesians, we'll see Paul focus primarily on two things. And Christ's effect on them, the earthly and spiritual powers the church faces in every age. And the identity of the church itself in this world. And Paul begins with the gospel for the church. The finished work of Christ on behalf of sinners and saints in Ephesus and in the entire world. And he reveals that it is this work of redemption accomplished and applied by Jesus that reveals God's plan and purpose for everything. So when we talk about the gospel, we're not just talking, although we're mainly talking about salvation. But in the gospel, we find in Ephesians God's plan and purpose for all creation, for everything that exists, because God made everything. God's plan to achieve His purpose in human history, to unite all things in His Son, has been accomplished by Jesus Christ in His work of redemption for sinners, into whom He makes His church. Let me pray, and we'll begin. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ, Your Word incarnate, in whom and by whom and for whom all things exist. Father, overshadow me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. That my tone and my content be pleasing to you, Father. The words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart in this text. Be with me. Overcome and overwhelm me. I ask you for the sake of your name and your purpose here in our church. And Lord, also for that same purpose, would you open the ears of every person in this room. Enable them to hear and believe the word of the living God. I ask in the name of Jesus Christ for this congregation. Amen. Read the first two verses here of chapter 1 to get started. He writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul wrote this letter, the Paul who was an apostle, a sent one is what that word means. Paul's life and identity are shaped 
by the will of God. And he wrote to Christians in Ephesus, the saints who are faithful. So everything in this letter has been written to believers primarily. And Paul greets them on behalf of God and his son Jesus with these two words that really summarize all Christianity and makes this letter possible in the first place, grace and peace between God and sinners as a result of Christ. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. So this introduction is basically the table of contents for the whole letter. It has punctuation in our Bibles. It's broken up into several sentences. But in the original, Paul wrote this as this opening prayer, verses 3 to 14, really, is just one long sentence. Nobody does run on sentences as beautifully as Paul does. But the Ephesians valued rhetoric. They valued words. And so Paul describes the work of God in Christ for them with some of the most beautiful descriptions and language in all Scripture. There are 12 plural personal pronouns here. Twelve. In this little stack of verses, everything in this text is describing what God has done for us, a group, the church in Christ, or as the church of Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise Him. Why? What has He done? He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In verse 3, where has he done this? Where do we receive this? In Christ, who is seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. Our salvation is as sure as his position, right? And so are all our blessings. Beloved, all that we receive from God as a gift of his grace comes to us because of where we are. We are in Jesus Christ. We are not blessed by God because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus has done through his word And his work, we have been baptized into Christ. Literally, Paul wrote in Galatians 3, 27. You and I are in Jesus in much the same way Eve was in Adam when God put him to sleep and brought his wife from her side. She was there even before she was there, wasn't she? And God drew her out from his side while he slept. Being in Christ for all eternity... Is how God made us the church. Jesus went into the belly of the earth for three days and three nights to accomplish full and final salvation for us. So when God raised him from the dead, he was bringing us to life also. As Paul will make clear later in chapter 2 verse 5. We live because we are in Christ. He's the origin of everything we are. He's blessed us there. His church, the bride of Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We have everything God intends to give to His Son 
secure for us in heaven. We must live in light of the spiritual realities that God says guide us. Because if our eyes are only on what is seen, we won't understand, we won't believe and embrace the fact that every spiritual blessing is already ours by virtue of Christ, in Christ, where moth and rust cannot destroy, corrupt, or decay. Even when we hold nothing, God is not withholding anything that is eternal from us. There's nothing we can acquire on earth that we don't already have in full in heaven, in the spiritual realm. You see where Paul goes immediately. He goes into the spiritual realm, no less real, simply unseen by human eyes. That is crucial to Ephesians, beloved, to understanding Ephesians, the simultaneous overlapping existence, if you will, of the spiritual and the physical, of the already and the not yet, as it's often called, in the spiritual realm. God reigns and keeps our inheritance for us in Christ, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Notice how everything we are and everything we stand to receive from God is ours by virtue of being in Christ or in Him in verse 4. We are blessed in Him, first of all. Now we read that we are chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. The Bible says that. Believe it, right? Believe it. That's why I referenced Adam and Eve earlier. God finds the church in Christ because God put the church in Christ in eternity past. Before the foundation of the world, the second Adam's bride was in him also waiting to be taken out. When Jesus came and lived for us then... In a spiritual sense, we were in Him by virtue of God's grace, where because Jesus obeyed, God counted us righteous also. This speaks to how when He was baptized, Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. For whom? Not for Himself. He didn't have any sin that needed washed away. He was fulfilling all righteousness for His church. Going into the water for her, coming back up for her. And when He was crucified... We were in Him as He bore our sins and sorrows. And when He was raised, God raised us up with Him because we were already His. Paul will go on to explain this in more detail in chapter 2. Beloved, the Bible teaches election and predestination. Or we have to deny Scripture. What we do need to do is let the Bible tell us what these words mean. Rather than trying to define it with our limited understanding of the concepts those words carry. First of all, the fact that all those who believe, that is, the church, were chosen before the foundation of the world does not mean that God chose some for salvation and then chose the rest for condemnation, or is often called double predestination. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. I used to believe that, to my shame. What it means, beloved, is that God chose His bride. It means that election is as personal as it is corporate. He knows every name of his entire body. They've been on his mind for eternity. And beloved, these types of things about God's design beyond what we can understand have been written for our comfort. Not to scare us, but for our security. We, we often think all our salvation or all our blessing is hinging on the tightness or looseness of the grip we have of God. And then you read Ephesians and find, oh my goodness, I've been in Him. He's been holding on to me. 
before I ever did anything, before I even existed. Paul is writing to the saints who are in Ephesus as a group for which all that he writes applies to and is true. And he didn't choose simply, like this is important, because since God is sovereign, he has the prerogative, which he does absolutely to do that if he wants. The Bible says he chose us for a purpose in verse 4, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That is why he places us in Christ so that we would be what he chose us to be before we even existed. He put us where we needed to be to become what he designed us to be in Christ. Before God created anything, he chose people that he was going to make holy and blameless before him. But they were going to sin and alienate themselves from him and get themselves lost. Humankind was going to fall. Yes, so God put his people in Christ to serve his purpose for creation, which we'll read again here in a few verses. Beloved, our holiness before God, the fact that God says we are blameless, is not because of anything we manage to do or keep from doing. That is not what makes a Christian holy. We are holy and blameless because of his promise of what we will be in Christ. I am holy. We are holy, the church, right now by location, not by performance. God has already decided before we even existed that holy and blameless is what we should be. So by the way, one of the dangers of making the text man-centered is that you'll read everything as like a challenge to you or something that you should be doing or performing. So when you read this, make sure you read the calls in Scripture to holiness as God's people as a statement of fact, not an invitation to perform. We are what God says we are because God has made us what he says we are in Christ. Remember chapter 1 verse 4 when you read the call to be Holy God has made us this in Christ and in the heavenly places. That is who we are right now. Right now. Notice this. You and I are not the subject of any of the verbs here. We aren't doing anything in this text but receiving, beloved. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will in verse five, not anybody else's will. Right. God wasn't looking down through time, as we like to say, to try and explain it away or get God off the hook for being God, that he's responding to something in me. No, no, no. He acts according to the purpose of his will, not our will. That's very important. It ups our security. Don't let that scare you away. God wasn't just looking down through the portals of time, seeing who would choose him. That, that's, that's not election. You don't elect people who've already elected themselves, at least not on purpose anyway. God isn't looking down going, okay, well, you're in, uh, you're not. Election is not described as the practice of choosing people that have already chosen themselves, nor is election a cold, mechanical, arbitrary act of God's overwhelming, comprehensive sovereignty. In the second part of verse 4, predestination is an expression of His love for sinners. That's what it is. That's how we should read it. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world 
to be holy and blameless before Him, predestining us in love to adoption. This is my child. I love him. I love her. I make it so. I make them all my sons. God's election is God's gracious act of adoption by which he makes his true sons and daughters or makes us his true sons and daughters with all the rights and privileges appearing there too because he did all of this for us in Christ. In Jesus, God's electing choice and predestination of his church before the foundation of the world means we are who God says we are and we possess now and will acquire then all that he says we would. So when you are struggling with your assurance and your confidence and your hope, ask yourself, why am I in the family of God? Why do I believe it's because he predestined us for adoption through Jesus by what he would accomplish According to the purpose of his will. So God chooses us for the purpose of his will, which is what Ephesians is about. What is his will? Because of what he wants to accomplish in humanity. God doesn't choose simply because God can if he wants to. An election is corporate in Ephesians. Here, all the pronouns are plural. Because God is describing the church. I elected my church before he tells them to do anything. He writes to them of all that Christ has already done. So God chooses and predestines because he has a specific purpose in mind. There's something specific he wants to do in creation. What that is, is hinted at in the next phrase in verse 6. So what have we seen so far that God has blessed, chosen, predestined, adopted, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So, that's how you and I got into Christ. Grace. Grace. Unmerited, unearned favor of God. It's like you walking into an orphanage filled with babies and setting your affections on this little one and legally making them your own. They're not consenting in it. They're not signing a paper. You are. You've decided, I want to adopt you. I want you to be my child. It doesn't mean you hate the other children. It means you set your affection on that one. So God has a purpose. There's something specific he's electing for. And his purpose for what he's doing in creation and humanity apparently has something to do with praising him for his grace. That's how we're blessed by God in Christ, who is the beloved in verse 6. Now let's read 7 through 10 again in light of what we've seen. In him that is in Christ, we have Redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. Doesn't sound very mechanic and cold. Lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Just what are, we, we've been seeing them, the spiritual blessings we've been blessed with in Jesus Christ. Notice that in Him again in verse 7. Everything is happening in Jesus for us. 
First in verse 7, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. Beloved, the first thing you and I have is forgiveness of our sins. Settled, accomplished, finished. We gather this morning in this church, regardless of the week we've had, spiritually a fully forgiven, clean people. So you sing at the top of your lungs, even if you know you've messed up this week. This is ours in Christ. We take that knowledge that we're forgiven in heaven, clean, finished, saved. We take that knowledge with us. That's why it's first into every moment of our lives as His people. That's why we want to make the cross the focus of everything we do on Sundays. Our forgiveness with no interruptions, no distractions, so that we head into each week God gives us on mission knowing that we're forgiven. So we're not called to good works. We're not called to mission to become forgiven, to gain our standing with God. But because we have it, because we're clean and we're free to be the church, which is who we are in Christ, I absolve you in the name of Jesus Christ, church. Your sins are forgiven on the authority of God's word and his son. It's not written that we will have redemption, but that we do have redemption. Our guilt is gone. We are redeemed. God has purchased us from the grip of sin and its penalty, which is death, according to the riches So it's not going to run out. According to the riches of the grace, He means to be praised for in verse 6. Why do we praise God for the attribute of grace? Why is it such a big deal? Because grace is how God forgave us and redeems us. Why He's adopted us. We belong in Christ. We are safe in Christ. When God predestined His church for adoption, His purpose was to apply His grace to us through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. In fact, it wasn't just, again, that He would mechanically distribute grace to each one of us, but that He would lavish it on us in all wisdom and insight. That's how God lavishes. It's not like God is just going crazy, overflowing with emotion, not really thinking about what He's doing. And then having to pull back, oh, I, I went overboard on the grace. No, 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 no. In wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will. In verses 8 and 9, God has made known to the church the mystery of His purpose and plan for the fullness of time itself. You and I have been blessed, beloved. The overflowing, overwhelming, redeeming grace of God is not an uncontrolled burst of emotions in God. It is the deliberate saving result of His infinite divine wisdom and insight. God lavishes with holy precision, beloved. How sufficient is the lavishing work of God's grace on you and me? Notice it is God's grace in redemption. It's through grace that God reveals the mystery of His will to us. Mystery, by the way, for Paul is not something that is set out there for us to find if we can break the right clues. Mystery speaks to something God has previously hidden and is now making known. Here we find that whatever God's purpose is in the world, the plan 
by which he means to accomplish it is through this thing called grace. It's the avenue through which all of this will come to and be done for humanity. Look at verses 9 and 10 again. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Church, Jesus is everything. Everything. And, and listen, that's a hard sell in the church to Christians. Jesus alone, Jesus all the time, only Jesus, always Jesus. The church is always saying, well, I mean, but we could still, you know, beloved, does it sound like he wants divided time? It cannot be. We are in too much need of Jesus all the time to not have Jesus all the time. The need is too great. All things were created through him and for him, Paul says in Colossians 1.16. And here we discover that God's purpose for creating the world was to unite everything in his son. That's why God made what he made. Things in heaven and things on earth in verse 10. Everything was created by and for Jesus. In grace then... God blesses, chooses, predestines, adopts, redeems, forgives, and makes known so that He might bring all things, spiritual and physical, together in His Son, Jesus Christ. God created this world with a purpose and a plan to accomplish that purpose. That plan is redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. The thing that makes the church become the church. In real time, how will God reconcile and unite everything in Jesus in amazing grace? He will send Jesus to redeem sinners by his blood and apply all he predestined them for to each and every single one of them. Beloved, the church is the embassy of God's Christ-centered plan for all creation here on the earth. When we gather We gather as that. We exist in this community by God's design as that, bearing His name. Through us, through us, God plans to gather in His people from every tribe, language, people, and nation so that through redemption, you see how central the gospel is? Not just to, it's not just the way you get into the community. It's the basis and the goal and the means of the whole community. Through redemption, Jesus becomes the center of everything. Whether or not creation praises God or rejects God, then all turns on Jesus Christ. The church is in the world as the recipient of grace to bring about in real time by his spirit the accomplishment of this plan. And it will happen. Hear Jesus speaking in light of this in John 10. That's why Jesus spoke the way he did. There will be one flock and one shepherd. I will buy them, I will make sure of it, and no one will snatch them from my hand. Because Jesus knows what God's eternal purpose is, and when Jesus comes, it's beginning to be revealed. And now in Paul, it has been fully revealed through the word God gives that Jesus gave, to be more specific, to Paul himself. So the church exists not to buy people. The church exists because people have been bought And now God has gone public with his intentions 
for the world. So the church ideally serves no other purpose than God's plan to unite all things in Christ. That's what our mission is for. If that's what God is working for, to unite everything in Christ, if we're not working for that, we're going against His plan. That's what's at stake, beloved, in the priorities we set, whether or not we're working with God or against Him, when He's fully revealed His plan, which means to work against Him is sinful, not neutral. Look at verses 11 through 14 now. In Him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things. In the Greek, that's all things. According to the counsel of His will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory, Paul writes. In Him, you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, which is, encompasses everything he's been saying. Do you see that? When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Remember verse three, until we acquire possession of it. Notice again, all this is ours. Every clause begins with in him, in Christ Jesus in verse 11, the existence, just the existence of the church reveals that God is accomplishing his plan for human history. It's working. It's going to be achieved. We are in Christ. We are reconciled to God. God's grace is making God's will happen. Here's another of the spiritual blessings that are now ours in the heavenly places in verse 11 an inheritance. How good does it get? God will manage the care of our souls for eternity. We'll be safe and provided for and blessed. We will acquire all that God has promised and holds for us now in heaven. Jesus signed our soul's will with his blood. All that God promises is and forever will be ours. Why? How can I be sure of this? How can I believe this and know this? Because when God predestined us to adoption, it means we were predestined to the inheritance all of His sons receive. Beloved, Christians are not working to get an inheritance. In Christ, we have obtained and been given an inheritance. God secures us and all His promises to us through Christ so that you and I are free to focus on the mission That's why the gospel matters so much. That's why the message of redemption matters so much. We need it all the time because God has a mission. Uniting all things in Christ is the purpose of the God who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Nothing is rogue in this universe. Everything thinks it's rogue. Everything thinks it's, and everyone thinks they're working to carry out their own design and their own will and their own purposes. And it's God who is working all things according to the purpose of His will. You and I have literally nothing to worry about. Nothing. There's there's nothing happening in our world or in the cosmos that is happening outside the sovereign hand of God's purpose. And here's the good news. God only listens to his own counsel. And then he works all things according to that counsel. God has the means and the end of everything in His hands to such a degree 
Then in verse 12, the first ones to hope in Christ, which Paul is saying, the Jewish people of which he was a part. The first ones, the first ones in, they might be to the praise of his glory. So we find there God didn't choose Israel so that Israel would be exalted or for Israel's praise. God chose Israel by grace for their role and his eternal purpose in Christ so that the first recipients of it, recipients of it, would also praise him. God raised up Israel to begin to show the world his purpose in creation. Doing that through the law so that it was clear to all mankind, we aren't going to earn any of this by good behavior. Now in verses 13 and 14, 14, the next to hope in Christ, so to speak, should realize they are for that same purpose. So God has one purpose for all things, no matter what specific role each piece plays in that purpose. Verses 13 and 14 again. In Him. There it is again. In Him. You also, when you heard the word of truth. He's talking now to Gentile believers in Ephesus. In Him. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So now we hear the means by which God applies this redemption and imparts this grace and wisdom to people, to the church. He does it by means of a preacher, a proclaimer of the gospel. The means by which God brings his people to knowledge of and faith in him is the proclamation of the gospel, of this information about his grace, his grace in providing Christ for us in redemption. Just like the first who received it when they heard it, so does every member of the church for all time receive it. The same means across all the ages. Hearing comes by the, or or, um, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word for all time. We receive this. Notice there, we receive this. From God's bountiful grace, we stand under the fire hose, if you will, of God's love. We hear the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and then we believe, since that's again, according to Romans, what hearing the word does. And upon belief, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, the antithesis to the mark of the beast, as John teases out in Revelation. Beloved, the whole trinity is united to the purpose of the Father's will for all creation in Jesus Christ. Do you see them all operating here? The three who are one, the role of the Spirit in salvation is to seal us. Like circumcision sealed the members of the old covenant. Seal us in our hearts now as the property of God who owns and governs all things for His gracious purposes according to His plan. The Father is the great source of our salvation. The Son accomplishes the salvation of the church. The Spirit applies the promises and benefits in real time of salvation to all those who have believed and have His seal. And in verse 14, the Holy Spirit guarantees, guarantees that we not only have now, but will also acquire then the inheritance we obtained in verse 11 because it was granted to me in verse 3 before I even existed. And all of this, God's plan, God's purpose, our redemption, our identity as His children, everything, uniting all things in Christ. You know what it's for? The praise of God's glory. 
We are the church in the world. Beloved, Jesus means to transcend this place. He means for it to be much more than a place where good friends meet who agree on Christian things and political things and all those different things. The church is way more than that. Way more than that. Beloved, you and I this morning, everyone whom Christ has saved and everyone who's received His grace, we are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places by God the Father. No wonder Jesus tells us to store up our treasures there. We were chosen in His Son before the foundation of the world. God has always known your name. He's always known where you are and where you were going to be and where you were going to go. We were chosen in His Son before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. We are and we will be. We were predestined in love for adoption to God as sons through Jesus because of the purpose of His will. Thank God for His sovereign grace deciding for me before I did. We are blessed with grace in Jesus as we have been redeemed through His blood where all our trespasses have been forgiven because of that grace. Grace that God has lavished on us, making it known to us, His church, in all His great wisdom and insight, what His plan and purpose are for this world. We know why the world exists. We know where it's all going. We know it's under control. We know it's going according to plan. God has granted that knowledge to His church. You and I have obtained our inheritance Because of the God who works all things according to the counsel of His will and guaranteed we will have it by sealing us with His Holy Spirit when we receive the gospel we heard. The purpose of God in this world is to unite all things together in Christ and in Christ alone. His plan to accomplish this also resides in Christ who redeems His children through His blood and creates them as His church that they, that redeemed by grace, group, the recipients of grace, might make known God's will to everyone and everything. The Great Commission didn't come until Jesus had lived and died and risen from the dead and was on His way back to the right hand of the Father. Quoting, the church is the single location and creation, in creation where the reconciling work of Christ is on clearest and fullest display. That's you, and that's me. So let us be what we are, beloved. Let's be who God says we are, rather than earth dwellers that have some knowledge about things. And so maybe you say, All of that sounds wonderful. What about me? Am I one of the chosen? Dear friend, don't ask whether or not you're chosen. Your reception of the message 
is your answer. For all who believe will be saved. That's all you and I need to concern ourselves with. It looks like God has made all that he has. He hasn't revealed to us. He's given us a mission. So that must be the means by which he will bring in his people. So you and I just keep doing what we're doing. Don't try to explain things that are beyond our ability to understand. I know there's some tension and ambiguity here. Let it be. Obviously, that's the way God designed it. Trust him. It's all in his hands. Evangelism can't fail. You aren't going to send anybody to hell because you don't argue well or because you don't know certain words and concepts. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. Believe in Christ and you will be saved. He turns away none who come to him. None. Come to him. And we'll put you in the waters of baptism. Where Christ proclaims in the water, by the water, what he has done for you. For his whole church. Jesus has come to redeem sinners. Not just from their sin, but for his purpose in the world. Believe him. Church, believe him. I'm saying it to Christians. Believe him. And be a part of his purpose for the world in his church.